That's one small step for brands. One giant leap for brand kind. You're listening to Food Chain, presented by Perfy. A big thank you to this episode's sponsor, Triple Whale. Triple Whale's powerful analytics platform clarifies your ad performance across channels, keeping you instantly in the know. Hit the link in the show notes and use promo code PERFY for 15% off today. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Food Chain. Today's guest, we have Amrit Richmond, founder of IndieCPG and Supermercado with us. Welcome to the show, Amrit. Thanks, Fasa. So I'd love to know more about how you got to where you are today and everything you do. I know you've been uh, living and breathing CPG for years now, whether a consumer or with insights and research. Can you share with the audience all of that? Yeah, I've been studying the CPG industry since 2017 professionally, but have grown up in this space as a consumer and got really excited in 2016 and 2017 when I started to notice these newer brands on the shelf that I could tell were made by people our age and not bigger companies or people my parents' age. So I started to to Google them and follow them on Instagram and realized there was this really cool emerging generation of brands that now you can meet at Expo West and other trade shows throughout the year and started to get involved in the the industry through, through my friend Stephen. And we together started a community and lots of different resources and events around these brands that we were both friends with. And when I think about su- supporting founders, it's not just about promoting their launches or new products. It's how can we collect help everybody stay in business, um, help them get access to resources that are usually only for brands that have raised capital, like discounts or behind the scenes opportunities where bigger companies or retailers are looking for brands to partner with. And how do you connect those founders to each other, especially people outside of the coasts that don't have dense networks in their cities? Online communities and virtual events have been really great for those moments. And I do think that meeting one or two or five other founders on a similar journey to you or similar stores to you can help you stay in business on the mental health side of entrepreneurship too. Oh yeah. It's always good um, commiserating with other founders going through tough times. Um, It sucks that we have to go through them, but it always happens. And there's some things you just cannot escape. This entire month for me has just been a wildly tough logistics challenge, but we're getting through it. And I just chat with friends, like who people you set up and introduce to each other. We actually met what was it? Snack Magic? You were doing research for Snack Magic? Yes. They're one of my longtime clients and always fun to collaborate with. We've done a couple different go reports. So you were in our beverage report and that's how we became friends. And that's how I've become friends with hundreds of founders as my clients want to meet the brands that are in my trend reports or in diligence reports for investors. And I'm always transparent with the brands about why I'm reaching out and it's up to them if they want to meet my clients. But I I really focus on finding clients that want to do right by the brands as well so that we can all work together to support the companies. Really cool. How did the snack magic thing come together? Because when I saw that, and again, I I didn't know you at the time until I posted, like I was shocked by how detailed it was and how great it was, not just because Perfy was included, just because the attention to detail that went into it. Like, how did that come about? Oh, you're sweet. We did a blend of Snack Magic's data. They have a global marketplace with thousands of brands on it. And their newer platform, CPG Pulse, is what I've been focused on creating content around. So taking the sales data from their online marketplace, we're able to compare brands to each other or compare flavors to each other. And 
drill down into subcategories. So within beverage, there's a functional category, there's cocktail mixers, there's coffee and tea, and it gives you a, a little bit of a glimpse of which of these emerging brands consumers across the country are responding well to. And most of their sales come from corporate gift cards. For example, a tech company might give everyone on their team 50 or $100 a month to spend on Snack Magic. So most of these sales figures are coming from people that aren't price sensitive, that are truly buying what they're attracted to. And it's a really lucrative customer base because of that. I imagine there's a lot of overlap with the whole food shopper or the Costco shopper that's watching what they spend to some extent, but really looking for excitement and value as well. So I work on their trends and insights content, leveraging some of that data from CPG Pulse. And then the rest of the data or categorization comes from data that I've been collecting since 2017. I have my own database of thousands of brands. What year they launched, I've cataloged over 250 ingredients by hand as well. Things that pop out, and you and I have talked about allulose as a sugar alternative, or yuzu I've seen pop up a lot recently as well in food and beverages. So anytime a client comes to me and says, we want to understand what's going on in this certain grocery aisle or certain city or subtrend or whatnot, I'm able to pull up at least 50 to 75% of the research from the database that I already have. It's incredible. And is it like a daily thing? Just out of curiosity, like you're in there every day, you see something new, you pop in there, you set reminders? Or yeah. It like? No, it's it's a mix of a, a daily occurrence. And I spend a couple hours a day on, on Instagram and, and LinkedIn looking for news as well through the community that I've co-built. Hundreds of brands let me know what their launches are every year. Also, all the data that I have is public knowledge. It's just not organized the way that I do it anywhere else. And it's it's exciting that to see clients use it in a lot of different ways. It's inspired me to make the data stronger also. Every project that I work on, something new surfaces in the data. Very cool. So Snack Magic was one of, for me, like I launched February of last year. And before that, I did like resale to get feedback. I've been, I would say for the majority of 2022, I was testing and learning. And Snack Magic was one of the first opportunities that I found to really crowdsource some of that feedback through their platform. And it, this kind of ties into your choose your own supermarket adventure. And if you're not familiar with Amrit's choose your own supermarket adventure, I'm going to put it in the show notes. Very cool graphics she put together. And Snack Magic, I think for me, was more of a R&D arm for me or a feedback arm. And it, it's mm -hmm. under brand builders. I, I totally see that. I just wasn't at a place where I could allow it to be a brand builder. But let's talk more about your choose your own supermarket adventure and how you classified in brand builders, grocery delivery, local stores, et cetera. Sure. So this was actually Snack Magic's idea to create because they knew that brands were using their data to go out and pitch regional and national retailers. And they really want to be that first stop for brands in their first year or two. They can work with brands any size, but it's especially interesting to them and their audience if they have an element of discovery and they don't have to be the first marketplace to carry a brand, but maybe it's the first time that one of their users at one of those tech companies see, sees the brand. And that's great for the brand as well because they're getting access to an audience that might not be looking at Instagram ads or really knowing what they're searching for on Google, but they see the product in the, the marketplace and then they decide to try it and they can upgrade to a full case on Snack Magic, or maybe they then see it at, at Whole Foods or Air One or wherever. So we put together the map together and the rest of the retail data actually comes from me logging what retailers a couple of thousand brands are in by hand as well. So it's directly pulled from the top retailers of brands like Perfy and other emerging brands that, that are in my data. Awesome. Yeah. I, I came together. Loved looking through it. I think 
For me, I view it like there's a couple different roads, right? Like I didn't launch day and date Perfy into Sprouts or Whole Foods. And we can't even be in Whole Foods right now because of Allulose. But I did plan on that being taken down, that that ingredient to ban. But for me, it was like things like Snack Magic. There was like the preseason of where your roadmap <laughs> starts. It was Snack Magic, Fair, Mabel. I'm actually still a big, I know Range Me still gets a lot of hate, but I actually really loved it. It gave me a lot of opportunity to at least get some impressions from people that I would go after later on, which is this year. But I think there's like a, a little bit of a, where can you test and learn? Because not every brand, even for Aero One or Goodsmart or Foxtrot has the capabilities to produce, and I'm sure they can figure it out. But what do you think about having it like four different roads broken down by channel? Like the tests and learners, the convenience, the regionals. I love your single state part of the highway. How do you view it like in terms of channel? I think we should create that map together. That's what I'm talking about. That was what I was so, getting to. <laughs> so you're saying with, within these buckets of brand builders versus grocery delivery, local stores, like how do you actually get into these? Yeah, there's like different paths. Like the on-ramp, right? Mm-hmm. With Perfy, it's been my first time really getting this experience. And I'm a rookie when it comes to being a founder, but been in marketing for a decade now. And it's really cool seeing, oh, this is what you have to do to get into this place. And it's always the chicken and the egg. But at the end of the day, you know that with 7-Eleven, it's likely the distributor is likely McLean or Cormark um, for convenience. Mm -hmm. And Costco, to be honest, I haven't even crossed that part of the, the map hmm. yet. Um, Tell me when know. you do. Yeah, you know somebody. You know, yeah. So like they've reached out, but I mean, we work with brands that do that, but I'm not on the upside of there. I'm just doing the marketing mm -hmm. stuff. But for instance, like Pod Foods is one that has launched and give, given capabilities to get into retailers sooner than later. They are what helped us, yes. they're who helped us get into to Foxtrot. There's UNFI for like more of the regionals. There's DSDs. There's probably stores on here where you can build a, a really deep volume in a certain place with some DSD or direct store yeah. delivery. Those local stores and maybe even the single states that only have three or five locations within driving distance of each other, there's probably a DSD that services them. So I, I think it's super cool. I think it's a, a great idea. And I think one of these broken down by channel can really hopefully help out some startup founders going through what I'm going through. I think wherever you start, knowing that you don't have to do it all at once, yeah, it's better to start with just one of the retailers, maybe under brand builders, a market that has a couple locations, or maybe you start with Foxtrot and then you work with someone like Thrive Market that might have larger purchase orders given their volume, and then see how that goes. If it goes well, keep adding stores. But no matter what size retailers you're working with, don't open more if it means you can't service the ones that you already have. Yeah, I think there's a couple, I've chatted with a bunch of different founders, some in beverage, some not, some really want to hone in on a, a geography. I think everyone kind of gears towards the coastal metropolitans, like LA and New York. For me, mm -hmm. I, I, honestly, I, I wouldn't say that I didn't have a go-to-market strategy. I, I had one and it didn't go exactly to plan and I had to start scrambling. But the cool part about that was like, I didn't expect some, you know, we're rolling out, which the PO should come in tomorrow into one of one of the regionals that are on your roadmap. And that wouldn't have happened had I not kind of been scrappy, you know, I had to be like, what's next then? What can we do? And thankfully we picked up somebody from a, a meeting at Expo East and a really cool broker. What advice do you have for a D2C brand that isn't in, in any retail at all yet that, that wants to test it before the summer? Yep. I'm going to preface this with, I launched Perfy hoping to get 10,000 customers before I rolled out into retail. The advice I have is those customer touch points, whether it's email or SMS or creating a Facebook group or having your own Discord or whatever kind of community app, those are very important because what's very, very difficult and what I'm seeing, and, and you can chime in on this, 
is retailers don't want to bring on brands without some sort of security of them selling through. And it's mm -hmm. one thing to get on shelf, it's another for that pull through to happen. And you can't do that starting at zero. So the idea behind it is build your online army. Yes, they can order online. It doesn't make you a D2C native brand. If your whole goal is brick and mortar and, or winning in retail and beverage, you have to. You still want those touch points. And I would advise people to build that house file somehow. Subscribers, affiliates, ambassadors, okay. emails, SMS, build that Rolodex as much as you can. So when you launch into retail, you can geo-target some emails, some SMS, some texts. You can text friends even that you have in those areas. And then, you know, some of the easier stuff is geo-targeting some ads with different executions to support that boulder. I love that. And I think you can even collect emails or phone numbers when you're doing demos or if you're giving away drinks at a music festival, have a QR code where people have to scan it and enter their info and they can get a free can. Don't just give stuff away. Always be getting data back in, yes. in those programs. Even if you're giving product to an influencer, see what you can learn from how their audience responded to it or have that influencer ask people a question on Instagram. I know giveaways are a little outdone, but there's yeah. still thoughtful ways to do it. I've, I'm still seeing great ones over email where 10 or 20 brands work on it together and give away something really meaningful. And those are great ways to get email addresses. I have a handful of friends that launched in an anonymous retailer in the last month together, and they're all coordinating their marketing efforts this quarter to help each other get through the test. Yeah. So yeah. going back to community, those are things you can do behind the scenes that only cost you time and coupons. 100%. One of my favorites right now to do this, it's a newer technology called Aisle. A-I-S-L-E. Yes. Tiffin is just the man shout over there. Shout out to Tiffin. Yes. Yeah. Big shouts to him. He'll be on Food Chain pretty soon. Cool. What they're doing is is so cool. And this isn't like a, it's not intended to be a plug, but part of the advice nice. where if you text somebody, if they scan a QR code, then you it's like a SMS protocol where they opt in. And then when they make a purchase, you basically give them a rebate via Venmo, PayPal, Zelle or whatever. But the mm -hmm. greatest part about what Tiffin's doing and the difference between Isle and Mandelik and Rhodes or Inmar is when they redeem that coupon, you still have their the customer touch point and you can have sequential messages or automations still offering them more offers and it can drips them away from that get one free can or buy one, get one free. Maybe it's 50 cents or 25 cents. And what he's doing is absolutely brilliant. Yes. Anybody looking to experiment with in-store activation should reach out to Isle. Absolutely. And I want to touch one more thing since you asked. I think a lot of brands maybe think that followers are part of house file for one brand that we work with on my agency side. Yes, that is technically part of it, but there's a very big distinction in having followers and having followers that can actually buy your product. So buying followers isn't going to no. getting some sort of relationship, diving deep into a relationship, whether it's eyes and delights, however you look at that, or just staying in contact with them and not asking them more than asking from them more than you're giving. So when people roll out into retail, if you hadn't sent an email in a year to your email subscribers, and then all of a sudden, hey, go buy us in Sprouts Regional or whatever it may be, you got to make an equal value exchange. In fact, you got to give more than you take. Yes. And if you're, you're launching in a certain region or a certain state, you can consider only emailing customers in that city exactly. or ta tagging it in whatever email marketing tool you you use. I'm an advisor to um, a tech company called No Commerce, KNO, and they do post-purchase surveys, but also segmented surveys based on behaviors that your customers take. So imagine surveying anybody who bought a certain flavor or didn't buy it or has bought it four times and using that, the information that you gather 
over the post-purchase questions and ongoing surveys to inform your go-to-market strategy for retail. If you're asking every customer online where you shop in retail, that would be incredible data six or nine months from now. Exactly. And those are types of things that we're doing on the agency side. We just uh, had a brand roll out into Costco Midwest and you want to be at a certain threshold in terms of dollars per week in Costco. It's significantly higher than the traditional grocery. And within two weeks, based on using house file, emailing, geotargeted emails, SMSs, paid social, driving to store locator or to offers, they were able to plus out and get an extended rotation, permanent rotation in Midwest. And that equates to 4 million per year at minimum. Those types of things add up. And those are the types of tactics we're going to use as we roll out into that uh, big regional. And we're also unlocking convenience channel this month, same time. Yes. And if you knew that your brand had an upcoming launch, even if it was six months from now, I, I know some friends that they did tests in the last six months, but they're launching in retailers in the summer because it's frozen or a seasonal item. So if you knew that you you had three or four months to be successful in a, in a national retailer six months from now in specific regions, I would be doing a ton of field marketing. I'd be doing music festivals this summer around there grocery demos, even out of home, finding local influencers in those areas. Even if you don't partner with all those people right away, it's like having that plan lined up. Don't wait until you launch in a retailer to figure out what your marketing strategy is. I know everybody's strapped for time and overhead right now, but the retail launch is one of the most important campaigns that that you'll work on because purchase orders, when, when they go well, they don't stay that small forever. The goal is to have a bigger purchase order, either more facings or be in more regions. Yep. Yeah, that's 100% it. I view, I try to equate my job to a video game. My job right now as a founder of Perfy, but on the marketing side, it's basically hungry, hungry hippos, or how do I collect as many touch points to a consumer as possible and build that relationship with them? So when there's an ask like, hey, we're now in Costco and it's a better price or it's a better offering or a larger offering. Those things are like almost like we're doing them favors, not asking them to do us a favor. And I mentioned it earlier, making friends with brands in the retailers you want to be in, in the retailers you're going to be in also is a really good use of your time. If you're not someone that's active in one of the CPG communities out there, or you just want to be more strategic with your time, pick 20 companies this year and make a point to catch up with them. Yeah. You don't have to be friends with hundreds of them. Just pick 10 or 20 that, that are in those retailers that ideally would be likely to be in the same basket as you, either because your products play well together or it has a similar functionality, helps you sleep, helps your deal with brain health and clarity, things like that, because those types of products, if you really make an impact on somebody's day, have a lot of word of mouth on online and offline in Facebook communities and group chats and on Reddit. So finding more of those customers that can't live without your product so that they can evangelize what you're building also is, yeah. is important for those retail launches. I totally agree. I, I want to transition. So I think it's a perfect segue for kind of 2023, not necessarily predictions or trends, but one, th one thing I'll start it off, I think that's going to happen is the way that you said, make friends with other brands. I think there's going to be a lot more cross promotion in retail. That's like, I remember Ryan from Pop Chips and then he was at Right Rise, did something really cool with a POP, no pun intended, but kind of intended where it like cross merchandise, like buy one Pop Chips, get this with another brand and it was years ago so i think it's like kind of like overalls they are coming back into style and the way that certain brands are making like chamberlain coffee and swoon i think that's you're going to start seeing that in retail from a promotional standpoint i just bought a pair of black overalls nice. so they're, back they're so they're so functional yeah they're like 
that you don't need a jacket. There's so many pockets. Anyway, yes, I agree that we're going to see a lot more cross promotions, similar to what we were just saying, that it's smart business to help show the customer what your product looks like with others, but also to cut down on on marketing expense. And every brand that was born online has an email list. If 10 or 20 brands pr- promoted each other you know, on a, in an on- ongoing cadence to help each other share audiences, that would be a huge unlock. Yeah, wh- why don't you think that happens more? We've, so on the agency side, we've tried to do this with a lot of brands and some are open to it, some aren't. I think that in order to get through 2023, it's almost like a necessity for brands to be open to collaborating with each other like a little bit more deeply. What do you think about that? Yes. And when I say 10 or 20 brands promoting each other, I don't mean all in the same email. Yeah. A founder could say, here are three of my favorite for travel, whether or not they play well with with your beverage company or knowing that grilling season and traveling are coming up. These are products that I always have with me. So it could be the founder's personal recommendation, kind of like an advertorial in a magazine, or it could just be... These are things that we think you'd like based on what we know about you as our customers, obviously with cooler copywriting. But um, I think it helps the customer build trust with those like-minded brands also. Yeah. And depending on what the call to action is, like could be here's a discount code that's good for two weeks that's only available here or sign up for this list to get access to discounts to all 10 of our brands and everybody uses the same discount code. I don't know. It, can, it d- depends. It could just be creating content together, like that group of brands I mentioned that are coordinating their, their retail marketing while they all test in the same store. Yeah, I'd love to see something. This is, again, bringing back the nostalgia from probably elementary school is you remember those cards that we used to sell as fundraisers and they had discounts to like Subway and like Vons or whatever. Yes, maybe. yes, like, the coupon like, books. Yes, I, I feel like that should come back into play. I don't know who's going to set that up, but it's like a coupon book where you spend $10 and you get like discounts on X, Y, and Z for the rest of the year or something like that. I love that idea. It's kind of like the Valpac model, but you buy into it. Yep. I think as long as it's legal, brands should get creative with each other. They have nothing to lose by cross-promoting each other. I do believe in doing these things by hand versus using a an agency or, or third party to facilitate all of it. I think there's nothing better than a bond between two marketers or two founders. It starts to feel transactional when there's a, a marketplace involved for those deeper partnerships versus an affiliate. I feel like, so Perfy has a loyalty program that's basically an NFT loyalty program. If if you're a holder of that, you can click a button and get like a discount on all products in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. If you sell it, like hopefully one day Perfy's as awesome of a brand as some of the others out there, and maybe it's worth something, you can sell it. And then that other person starts claiming your, you know, your lifetime perks or whatever. I feel like like a company like Novel or Taco can put something together like this, where it's Mm -hmm. all of these different brands. The NFT looks like the brand. If you have it, you can go to different stores as long as they have the technology and redeem that coupon. I like that. I, I like that because the brands have something in common that they're building in and around NFTs versus more broadly CPG, where the brands never meet each other, but they're somehow partnering on a platform. Yeah, that's something cool. I got to reach out to the guys at Novel and tell them to put that together. Shout out to Ish. I always give Ish shout outs for Novel. He's the best. Related to that, that quickly, I do think that offering discounts to different NFT communities or um, subreddits, anywhere where there's a, a dense community of people that might be interested in your product, still feel like an overlooked strategy. Yeah. Reddit, what do you think? I love that idea. Reddit is so... In, so I'm going to give a quick story. When I was at Quest, Ron Penna was like, Vasa, I challenge you to create a Reddit today and somehow promote this product. It was, I think when I was working with West Training, they had these like combat sports type stuff. It was pretty fun. It's like, I dare you to create a Reddit, 
try to post about it without getting flagged, like flagged being completely roasted by people knowing that it was me trying to promote a product. And it's one of the toughest places to really authentically engage while trying to promote. And I don't know if they're mutually exclusive or it can be done swiftly. I did pass this test that time. I don't know how, but it's a very tough one. I've gotten roasted trying to promote Perfect before. Interesting. So it's important that the post comes from a user in the sub. User in the sub, the subreddit. Yes. Yeah, so we're working on a campaign with a vegan candy bar company, and we're part of the campaign is the Reddit Blast. And we're going to try to identify 100 Redditors in the vegan subreddit and have them post about the candy bar and see if anyone's had it. And we're going to see how that goes, but there's only one way to find out, you know? Yes. Well, I, I admire your willingness to experiment. More <laughs> brands need to embrace your spirit. You just got to do what you got to do. You don't know. If it's going to work until you do it and it's ground upon until it works. So I'm always down to follow my face and figure it out. What's your take on, I know you had an awesome thought about how buyers at retailers thinking of bringing on brands similarly to the way investors are thinking of investing in brands. Yes. I recently co-wrote a five-part fundraising guide on Ampla's blog. For anybody that's that's fundraising now or planning to this year, check it out. It has a lot of questions and answers that might be on your mind about how to approach a raise. And something we talk about in there are three R's that investors are looking for founders who are responsible, resourceful, and resilient. And I really believe that retail buyers at bigger chains are looking for the exact same thing. No one can predict if you'll fully sell through on shelf, but they're picking the brands that are most likely to perform well on the shelf that have marketing teams and in-house sales teams that understand unique economics of retail, that understand all the different fees, which depending on the retailer might be negotiable, but probably not negotiable on your first purchase order. They want to see that you sell well, and then you're in a negotiating position. And they're looking for products in different ways have mass appeal. And mass appeal does not mean boring. It just means that people are going to understand what it is when they see it. They're not going to be scared or offended by it taste-wise or price-wise. And that it, it's something that they could really make space for on on the shelf. A retailer doesn't make money if the product doesn't move on shelf. They, they want you to sell out so that they can continue doing business with you. Otherwise, they'll give the shelf space to somebody else. But I feel like in 2017 to 2019, when I first started studying the space, there was a lot more room to get on the shelf and see what happens because retailers had a more innovation approach to the shelf. And now they're really just looking for what's going to sell. And it doesn't mean they still can't bring in innovation that's new to their stores, but that magic combination of my customer has never seen this before, but again, they're going to understand what it is and they're going to want to keep buying it is what they're looking for. And I've heard from some investors that they're looking for brands that are already in one big retailer, ideally more than that, but it de-risks their investment if you're coming to them because a big retailer doubled their purchase order alongside you planning to fundraise anyway versus... You want to raise to test the waters in retail. Yeah, this fascinates me and it makes me want to jump to our next subject too early, but I'm not going to. But is that, do you think that buyers are taking an objective approach to this, like with data and like some equivalent of diligence? Do you think it's subjective where it's maybe they think it's good, but maybe it's not? I don't know. I'll tell you why I'm asking. I've had buyers say this is delicious. You know, the branding's on point, the innovation is trending. And then I've had other buyers say, not a big fan of the taste, I hate your packaging. And uh, just so many, like, it's almost like polarizing. Like, they didn't really say, I hate your packaging. They're like, I forgot what, what exactly they said, but it's it's pretty polarizing. And some people are saying they love it. Some people say, you know, maybe not. How are buyers making that decision? Is it with data? 
I believe to some extent it's with data. From my understanding, they're expecting you to provide the data for them versus doing diligence on a brand like an investor would. But it is important to show them that you wouldn't be the first retailer that they're partnering with for those retailers that are kind of in the middle of the road on that. Choose your own adventure map we were talking about earlier. The farther you get to the right, the more data and diligence they're probably going to do before giving you an end cap or a huge purchase order. Because it is risky for them also, not just if it doesn't sell through, but that's time that everybody wasted. Some of the slides that you might put in your retail pitch deck, you could repurpose for your fundraising deck. It's changed the copywriting a little bit or the title of the slide, but I think that both decks will improve a founder's confidence in the other meetings. Yeah, my pitch deck for buyers and my pitch deck for fundraising are pretty similar. Some have slides that the other ones don't, vice versa. I'm with you on that. It's going back to the data point though. With the buyer, that was like the taste might not be for me and the branding not so much. Me and the broker both said at the same exact time via text, we can't wait to show them the data from fill in the blank that we're rolling out to later this month. I think that's kind of how you beat it. If it's selling, it might taste bad to someone, but I think that's the way to beat it is always through velocity reports. Yes. And both retailers and investors need to back things that don't agree with their taste buds because they're not the average customer. If something is so bad that they don't think anybody would buy it, that's different. But if it's just a personal flavor, like this is too sweet or too salty for me, I think they're doing their customers and LPs a disservice by having the product stop at them and not seeing the full potential of something and not doing a, a taste test. You know, have the rest of your buying team try it or ask the brand for data from somewhere like Snack Magic. If they said, well, I don't like taste, here's data from a thousand customers who commented on how much they liked the taste. And I think there's a way to fight back a little bit with data when someone says, I don't like the way your product tastes to say, I respect that, but I want you to understand why of the people that like it, this is why they feel enamored by it, especially in the nostalgia category where people have given up a lot of these fun products for years as adults because of the sugar content or the lack of nutrition. I think those are the type of products that will do really well this year in the functional nostalgia bucket, like a high protein ramen, like Emi, your product, anything that has something extra in it. Could be that caffeine, it helps you through the day. It could be fiber, something you're lacking in your diet. Anything that isn't just what it is on the surface level, I think people, yeah. pe people are willing to spend a little bit more on. I love that take. And I think it's important sometimes like a product might have something added to it that's functional. But what I like to think about with Perfy is what's also not in it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I don't know if what's not in it is weighed in enough on by decision makers in retail. Hey, this doesn't have cane sugar. That's pretty cool. How do they make it taste like it's full sugar? That's mm -hmm. when you can start talking about cool sweeteners. And I think what's added to it and what's not in it at all are equally important. Yes. Somewhere I've seen a graphic where a brand said, this is who we are and this is who we're not. And it illustrated that really well or those charts online, like what's in or what's out, eat this, not that. Like there, there's got to be clever ways to make it clear. Most importantly to that retail buyer, who is the gatekeeper between you and hundreds of thousands of customers in retail for them to understand it. And the way that you describe the product to them might not be the way you describe it to their customers, but sometimes you have to play to their psychology a little bit so that they understand how you stand in, but also stand out in their aisle and add incrementality to the shelf because they don't want another ketchup. If you go into that ketchup aisle, it's just all red and it blends in with the barbecue sauce. But if you had a low sugar ketchup, like true made foods that I'm a big fan of, that is one of the most differentiated products in, in the aisle. So there, there has to be some kind of edge to what you're building to, to wedge yourself into their set for a test.
Yeah, I'm with you on that. Like I just saw a couple of cool pictures. I, I know Awesome Sauce is like a dry mm -hmm. ketchup and barbecue and they really stand out when you look at the the set. I saw another one uh, of an olive oil. That's I, I looked at, I was shocked. I was like, damn, I wish beverage was that easy to stand out. Not that, that I'm sure those decisions weren't easy to get to, but beverage is a sea of a lot of similarities when it comes to packaging. And it's almost like it was my Achilles heel. My ultimate goal was not to go to a, one of the top branding agencies in America because one, there's a, a huge price point. Two, oftentimes things come out somewhat similar. And so I went to Australia and this was my downfall early on and a, a learning that I've, I'll, I'll never make the same mistake again. There's different parameters in Australia and how you can package things. Fonts can be smaller, lighter weights. And I made that mistake on 1.0 inventory, but thankfully I learned pretty quickly and I digress, but like it was a huge issue is to try to stand out in beverage outside of what's inside of the liquid. How do you stand out with the packaging? It's a tough task. Yes. And some of the best packaging in the grocery store is in the beverage aisle. The bar is even higher. Oftentimes people stand out with color like you have to help people see that the orange one is probably going to have some orange in it or the yellow one might have pineapple in it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Or the fruit punch. The packaging should play to the flavors. It helps people decide which one to try or if they want to try all of them. But I think some brands overthink the packaging for retail or they think about it too late also. So you were saying some of the, the popular branding agencies, some of them don't have experience in retail. I think it's so important to pick a design partner who has designed something that's surrounded by competitors and is doing that exploratory research and not just looking at cool design blogs of probably concepts that never made it even to a customer's home for inspiration that might win awards, but we're not in the business of winning awards. We're in the business you. of selling through on shelves. So I love good design, maybe more than most people in, in the industry, but I also recognize a, a like a simple package sometimes sells better. I saw that Ithaca Hummus just launched Salsa today. The founder announced it on LinkedIn and their packaging is super simple. It's hummus. Their first product was hummus with a photo of what vegetable or spices are in it. And it stood out because nobody had a photo of the flavor in the aisle wow. and the way that they stack up against each other on the shelf really stands out too. Your eyes just instantly go there. Bonza pasta is another great example. Everything in the pasta aisle is beige or blue. And they said, we're going to do a burnt orange, draw everyone's eyes to us. And it also happens to be functional and high protein and gluten-free, but they first catch people with that color. So Twice Toothpaste just did that with their yellow. The, the yes. mouth rinse is awesome. They also did something like, we're doing a lot of shout outs today. Who cares? They just yeah, did- Shouting out a, all the friends. Customer review audiogram. It was like a, a high res three image of the mouth rinse. And they used some software. I forgot what it was called. Maybe it was just a voicemail to their CX, but- a customer review and they just played it over it with a moving little you know audio and it was just the coolest thing but they're really owning the color yellow in the oral care aisle no matter what it's just they're owning it they totally stand out yes i'm friends with cody and really, really admire what they've done with the rebrand it's a great color block on the shelf and when you have it in your bathroom it feels more like skincare it feels prestige even though you can get it at a drugstore makes people feel good about the purchase and and the ritual i think they're doing everything right and the product is great too yeah, I love that rinse. Bought four tubes or canisters or bottles of it, whatever it's called, and gave them out as gifts during Christmas. They're so dope. Let's transition to a really brilliant article that was written by Emily Sundberg in, what was it, Grub Street? New York. Yes, New York Magazine's Grub Street. Yeah, very cool article, very, you know, different schools of thought. But I think the cool part about it is what is the definition of small washing? What makes, I know that in there you were quoted saying like we, it should be redefined. What, what's your take on this? 
short. I would ask Emily to dig deeper into her definition of small washing. The question that I pose to our industry is at what point is a brand that's independently owned no longer considered small? And it might depend on the brand. I know brands that are seven years old that aren't in a national retailer yet that have the same sales as a brand that's one year old. So I don't know if it's based on age. I think it could be defined as distribution or revenue, but even revenue is dependent on brand because what if your cogs are super high and you have to spend most of that on just making more product? It might just be a gut feeling that the founders have about their brand. Like, oh, we're not kids anymore. We have to make sure that we stay on shelf now. Or it could be that you see the brand everywhere and it doesn't feel small batch anymore. I, I think it's when I said that we should redefine it, I wasn't suggesting that we define it closely and put it in a glass jar. You and I don't have the full answer. I think that this stuff evolves, but I, I do think it's a healthy discussion to have. I've been looking at the Expo West exhibitor list and I'm seeing brands on there that are 10, 20 and 30 years old. And should that be allowed? Even though it's not a show specifically for brands that launched in the last few years, how does a brand like yours feel about being alongside a brand that's 20 years old and having a retailer think that you're both the same age? Funny question, actually. <laughs> I've got a, a thought on that. So one of my big expenditures last year was paying for Expo East in last September and then Expo West this year coming up next month. And I started asking myself, like, damn, am I not a small business anymore? It's just me with some outsourced folks helping me, R&D, ops. And we have a booth and it was so expensive, but I think that there's a way to make it worthwhile. You know, I was able to meet with a buyer last September that turned into us rolling out with them very shortly. And I was like, that's worth it to me, but am I no longer a small business? And my thought, like Perfew, like the first eight months of getting it off the ground was basically all of my savings, all of my sold stocks, all of my crypto. I don't know if that should be weighed in, like how much like skin in the game does do the founders mm. have? I think that can be something because no joke, I've got nothing left and I'm cool with it. I'm so pumped on Perfy. I'm so excited about the, the journey. And if things don't go right, which I don't foresee, I'm next game. What's what's next? It's not like a, I'm terrified or anything, but I feel like founder funding should be somewhat implemented. And I agree with you, like the big brands that are completely swagging out at XOS and East, got things floating in the air, 40 <laughs> by 40s. Like I'm looking at those things like I'm like, this is Disneyland. That's so cool. And I've got a 10 by 10 that cost me way more than I wanted to spend, plus the cost of even having a pallet ship. But I've got no totally. foreign because I'm, I'm cutting my costs. Sorry. You know, I think that small washing goes both ways where you see a bigger company, even a corporation, they launch a brand and they want it to look like a startup and trick consumers into thinking they're small and delicate and they're going to sell out. So you better buy it now to companies that are a couple de decades old and still technically an indie brand because they haven't been bought. Maybe they're a family owned business that still use the same label, but they're doing double digit millions a year. I saw some broth companies and some jam companies did that in, in recent research and they make it really difficult to find the year that they launched on their site, but they do have a family photo. And I think that it still leaves some like mystery and romance in the brand when people don't know how big they are. And I would apply that to some of the indie brands. Also, Emily noted that on Instagram, some of these brands remind their audience or their customers that they're just a small team and that they're doing their best. And I believe that everybody is doing their best. Some people have more resources than others, whether it's funding or you said some founders fund their own business. Working capital just helps you work through problems. It doesn't make the problems go away. 
But I don't think that we should discount a brand just because they raised money. But if they raised a significant amount of money and still calling themselves small as a marketing tactic, I agree with Emily. That's a problem that we need to discuss as an industry because it isn't true. Yeah, 100%. I think I'm of the mind that the soul boosts of the world, I feel comfortable calling that brand out, that launch as though they're a boutique sparkling adaptogenic nootropic water, I think that's a little bit misleading and not fair, especially to what they did to the other challenger brands that are just trying to create a solvent business, you know? Yes. The best way you can support small businesses as a corporation is to invest in them or partner with them as a, yep. with a distribution con contact. It's not create things similar, so similar to theirs that you can tell that they copied a smaller brand. Another big soda, the other one is the big red one. They did something similar with Aguas Frescas. Last year, there was that's a- right. There's a pitch competition and Coca-Cola Innovation was one of the judges. And then this year, it looked quite similar to Kayla's campaign mm -hmm. when she launched um, Agua Bonita. Agua Bonita, yes. Yeah, that's, I think that stuff should be really, like it, I saw whatever Minute Maid's Aguas Frescas is at a Chevron recently. I'm like, ugh, like never going to buy that. I think it would be so much cooler for one of these big beverage companies to put on a pitch competition that ma made it very clear that there's going to be 10 winners and we're going to help incubate their brands and help them grow, similar to the Mondelez Snack Futures program that I've heard great things about. They're doing it right, where they're building a pipeline of emerging brands and sincerely want to partner with them and, and support them. And I'm sure it helps them keep an eye on the market, but they're doing right by the brands. I think that would be so cool. You I mean, you might as well. Eventually, you might gobble some of them up. And it's all about going back to building relationships and partnering with others. Yeah, they don't need to. But if you're going to cobble together a, a brand that's not really small, that you're making it feel that way, you might as well just partner with them. I'm 100% aligned with you. Well, that's all I've got on, on small washing. Um, it's been so fun. I wish we could go on for hours and hours until we're exhausted. But uh, I'm going to link to your in the show notes to the Ampla article. I'm going to link to your roadmap all of that other stuff. Any other places we can find you? Just ndcpg.com. We have a ton of, of resources that we've been building since 2017 and we'll continue to, to add content there this year. So that's the best place to find us. Awesome. I'll link to your uh, LinkedIn as well. Thank you. Thanks for joining. Awesome.